Good morning, everyone. I'm Naya Swami Asha, and here we are with our shelter-in-place broadcast. Um, let's start with a prayer. Heavenly Father, Divine Mother, Friend, Beloved God, Jesus Christ, Babaji Krishna, Lahiri Mahashaya, Swami Sri Yukteswar, Beloved Master, Paramhansa Yogananda, Saints of all religions, Dearest Friend and Guide, Swami Kriyananda, with deepest devotion, we open our hearts and minds to your transforming presence. Help us to attune ourselves to the highest wisdom, to find within ourselves the light of your presence, and then give us the courage to follow that light through the winding paths of this world to our infinite home in thee. Om. Peace. Amen. I've decided to call today's segment Suffering. I tried really hard to find a nicer way to say it. I thought some little clever little words, some little clever phrase I could put around that, but actually the subject that I just want to talk about is suffering. I don't want to talk about it as uh, something that we all like or love or anything like that, but I had a conversation with someone yesterday, you know everybody's talking to everyone, if not in person, at least over the um, wires or the non-wires as it is these days. Um, and we were talking in general about suffering in a context actually unrelated to um, the adventure we're on right now. But nonetheless, it, it brought to mind some very important lessons that I thought would be extremely pertinent for this situation. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll start with the context of it. In 1986, for the first time I went to India, I didn't have a passport until I was in my early 30s, and the first trip I took was to Europe. And uh, then, later then, I went to India. I think that was the second time I'd used my passport, I'm not sure. And let me get the thought of it exactly. Oh yes, I was one of four leaders uh, taking a group of Americans on a pilgrimage tour based on autobiography of a yogi in the footsteps of the masters, we called it since 1986, many, many of these tours have been taken. Um, of the four leaders, only one of us had ever even been to India before. The three of us, including me, I'd never been to a non-Western country. I'd never been to what, what was then called the developing world. I don't know what the words, proper words are now. And in 1986, uh, the country of India was quite a different country than the one that we're seeing now. I was very um, well informed, though, about the spiritual, <clears throat> the spiritual side of what we were doing, about our masters, about Sri Ramakrishna and other saints that we visited, about autobiography of yogi, about self-realization. So we had professional Indian guides to help us with all the logistics of it, but once we were at a spiritual location, I, I knew where we were. And so it was a absolutely magnificent adventure and the beginning of 20 years of those tours, not quite every year, um, but we did quite a few of them and they were just a glorious experience. I became extremely expert in this tiny little route through India. 
I, I was a person who'd been to India more than most of my friends, but I, if I'd been on my own, I wouldn't have been able to even know how to get a taxi cab. I just would move this group through. Now, the India we were looking at in 1986 was way prior to the, the international uh, globalization, modernization, enormous rising middle class that is India now. In 1986, which, um, you know, India only became an independent country in was it 48 or 49? And it became an independent country, powerfully under the influence of Mahatma Gandhi, whose spiritual power was what had uh, liberated it. But a great deal of that was also this absolute repudiation of Western culture. Um, you know, a, a furious repudiation of it because the British had basically destroyed the country. You know, India was the wealthiest country in the world, and that's why the British went there many several centuries before and gradually India became poor and England became rich and it was it was not unrelated so there was a and the Indians were completely disrespected uh, by the British and so there was a natural tremendous reaction against it so in 1986 India was actually closed to foreign corporations the Gandhian principle was that India would take care of itself and he even wanted to take them back a little bit to the simplicity of an earlier life. But that was not the way the world was going. But in 1986, India was still closed to foreign corporations. I think in 1989, if I'm not mistaken, our second or third trip there, um, India opened. And I remember going to the uh, Ganges in Varanasi when at, right after India had opened and there were ads for Coca-Cola painted on the sides of the little boats that took us out into the middle of the river. And it was like, oh my, th things have really changed. Now, Swami Kriyananda's comment, I'm going to skip to this just to settle this issue. His words are, India is much too important to the destiny of the planet to be held back. He said, it must rise and take its place among the great nations of the world. This is Swami's 2004 um, analysis of uh, the necessity for moving forward as we're moving forward. Now all of this is to say in 1986, 87, and even for a number of years, many, most of the years that we went, there was an enormous amount of poverty in India. And you would see, just walking down the street and on the street, you would see things that you, if, if you had never traveled outside of a Western, uh, out of America or a Western European country, you simply would never see. We were, we traveled in five-star hotels and I remember being in the, the Oberoi Grand Hotel in Calcutta. And the room that I had was on the side of the building that looked down on the street of Calcutta. We were there for five days. And there was a family living on the sidewalk outside my window, a, a, couple, a few floors down. So I could stand on my balcony or look out my window and watch their life. I mean, I got to know them. I, I got to know their children. I got to know how they slept at night. I got to know how they had food. I, I saw them bathing at the spigot and just absolutely out of the question for what I had ever seen anywhere else. You saw people on the street who suffered for lepro from leprosy, deformation of kinds that just weren't visible in California like this. So my job also on this pilgrimage trip was that I, I was uh, involved with the people. I wasn't involved with the logistics or anything like that. I was just involved with the people and my job was to keep everyone 
moving toward the light. This was a 28-day trip also, by the way, so it was a long cycle together. Keep everyone moving toward the light. Now, most of the people, virtually all, I, I think almost everyone we took to India had never been to India before. Almost all of them had never been to a developing country. So all of this was a new view for them. People's reactions to the sight of this poverty, which translated in their minds to the suffering of these people, it was, it was the same thought, varied so widely. It was just such a, there was such an enormous variation from a complete sort of ease and an ability to just kind of walk through the people who were begging and, and just relate to them very happily and be very comfortable with the demands that were placed on them and to be friendly to the children, to people who were so freaked out that literally we'd have to put a little coterie of protective, calm energy through them just to get them from, you know, the sidewalk onto the bus. What to speak of ever going down a, an actual street anywhere. So I began to, and, and interestingly for myself, I found it very interesting that whereas I would have expected myself to have had a very strong, uncomfortable reaction, I did not at all. I felt, you know, this is just the way things are. And not that, not that your heart wasn't touched. You would have to be made of stone not to, not to feel a compassionate sympathy. But it, it didn't freak me out, is the only words I can use. So what I began to understand on multiple levels, this was my belief at least, is that people's ability to perceive widespread suffering in others was in exact proportion to the degree to which they had accepted within themselves the necessity for suffering as the soul's progress from delusion to freedom. And recognized that, no, I don't enjoy my suffering and I certainly don't enjoy your suffering, but I recognize that Divine Mother is in charge. And I can see in myself, which I've learned much more strongly since 1986, that I wouldn't wake up if these things weren't given to me. So the fact that they're unpleasant, even tragic, does that make them bad? It's, you see how, how confusing the question gets? If the only way I can get from here to perfect bliss is down this road, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil because you are with me. If the only way I can get from here to there is by this route, why would I not want to take that route? Oh, lots of reasons, fear being the biggest one among them, but why would I rebel against the necessity of it? And now this is, is this a simple question? Absolutely not. And then it starts playing into, and this is the conversation I was having yesterday, and this is about evolution through the casts. You know, in these little 30-minute broadcasts, I'm like bringing in huge ideas. And fortunately, I can say on my YouTube channel, which is now inching up toward 1,000 videos, there are long classes about all these subjects. And the, and the class is about karma and reincarnation. And there, I don't know if you could actually find something called the caste system. But the caste system, which I'm about to describe to you in very minor terms, is actually a definition of the progressive evolution of spiritual consciousness. And there are four basic castes, and the, the, the social oppression system that we now see is not the true 
caste system. The true caste system is a realistic acknowledgement that people are at different states of realization and that what is appropriate and what the characteristics of those states of realization are and what is appropriate. So for the purposes of this discussion about suffering, the second caste is the Vaisha caste. It's, it's Vaisha means merchant. And it's not that all merchants are Vaishas, but the Vaisha is willing to give as long as there's something in it for me. And that's part of the definition. But the, the meaningful definition is the way I make myself feel safe is that I make sure that my environment matches my idea of what it's supposed to be. So I will work hard to earn money. This is the merchant idea. I will buy a house in a good neighborhood. I will put a fence around it. I will have a security system. You know, I will, I will only let people in my house that I like. I will marry someone who will obey me and all my children will be good. You know, it's just like I will control my environment because if my environment gets away from me, then I feel frightened. Now, the problem with that is it doesn't work. Fire, flood, earthquake, viruses, economic collapse, war, um, your wife stops obeying you, your child turns out to be a lemon. You know, it's just like all kinds of things happen and we all know it. We try to make ourselves secure and we can't. Now gradually over lifetimes we learn, oh, there has to be a better way. And then we move into the Kshatriya class, which is the warrior king, which says the only security is when I control my consciousness in relationship to a greater reality. Okay, back to suffering. So, your suffering makes me uncomfortable, so I have to do something to make you stop suffering. So it was very distressing to me when I first learned about these that, with all due respect, a great deal of social service is actually coming from the Vaisha level. It's not that it's not important to do, and it's not that it's not generous and a necessary stage, but a great deal of it is the way the world is makes me uncomfortable. I'm going to make the world the way I want it. And it's very good training because you begin to give a lot of energy for, the, for an altruistic end. But of course, in the end, you discover that you can't make the world do what you want, partly because we're in early Dwapara and the balance of light and darkness is just not going to go all the way to light. Now, you can do a lot of good. I was just listening to this wonderful Larry Brilliant, who was the doctor who's, who's getting to be known right now in this particular time. He was personally involved in the eradication of smallpox on planet Earth. There's a TED talk that he's given. I, I knew of him already. He's written a book called, his name, his actual name is Brilliant, and his book is called Sometimes Brilliant and Sometimes Not, <laughs> which is just an, a brilliant name. Very interesting life, but he was involved personally in eradicating smallpox, and he did it at the behest of his guru, and, he, and they did. And, and his guru, Neem Karoli Baba, said that eradicating smallpox was a gift from God to this planet because of all the hard work that scientists and doctors had been doing for many years to alleviate suffering. So to alleviate suffering is a really wonderful thing to try to do. That's, we're here to serve. We're here to be Divine Mother's instrument. We're here, to, we're here to comfort. But when we become anxious and afraid because other people are suffering, then we've moved to, from a calm desire to be Divine Mother's instrument and bring comfort to you must be different because I am uncomfortable. My father, my family was Jewish. 
my father's mother, whom I didn't know very well because my father moved to the opposite side of the country from where she lived and did not have a very close relationship with her, he said very simply, Jewish mothers are very funny on television. He said they're not so funny when you're raised by one. And I remember he did, he, my father was very careful and he didn't speak ill of others, but he said, this was my mother, I'm cold, you better put on a sweater. And you know, when you follow through that, I'm uncomfortable, your life needs to be different. So my friend that I was talking to yesterday was talking about this sort of enormous sense of responsibility that she bears, that so-and-so's life is not working, she has to be able to fix it, I mean, not for the whole planet, but for people who are close to her, a constant sense of worry that she's not able to make other people's lives better. Um, A slight exaggerated sense of one's position in the world, you can start with that. But I actually expressed to her that I had to go through exactly the same cycle, have gone through, and have come to a, what I believe is a wiser understanding that is no less compassionate, but is more, more based in truth rather than based in anxiety and fear. Because I'm energetic, because I'm creative, uh, because I, my responsibilities in life ever since I came to Ananda were, um, uh, my personal responsibilities have been slight. I have no children, I have no home to take care of, my life is dedicated to service, and I'm part of a large community, and I've been put in a position of some responsibility. So I have always been involved with many people's lives, and because I'm energetic and creative and naturally generous of time and energy, I could do a lot to help people make their lives better. Oh, you need fresh juice, I'll make you fresh juice every morning. You need someone to help clean your house, I'll come and help clean your house. You know, you need someone to take you out, sometimes I'll take you out like this. But I, I, it, well actually, let me tell you when I began to realize how it was working. I, it began, I began to realize it when my parents began to decline, which was now, they've been gone for 10 years, so maybe I'm, I might be talking 20 years ago. When my parents' health began to decline, and I began to see difficulties that they were facing, I went in to fix it. Of course, I would go in to fix it. Why wouldn't I go in to fix it? And I kept they didn't. They lived some distance, but I would go see them often, and I would come in and fix it. I would rearrange the kitchen. I would set up the meal plan. I would buy them new containers for the meals on wheels that were coming in. I, I was just doing all this stuff, and uh, they didn't seem to appreciate it <laughs> in the way that I thought they would appreciate it. And in that, something that had been nagging at me for my whole life began to become clear: Who are you serving? And I I had to admit what I was trying to do as I was trying to organize my parents' life in such a way that nothing would happen that would inconvenience me. And I mean, that was a hard thing that I had to realize because I had to feel that I had to run down and fix it, so I had to organize them so that I wouldn't be interrupted. And I just like, they didn't even exist in the equation. And then one day, finally, kind of because my mother was being a little crabby, with me, I began to ask the question, why are you doing this? You know, do you even know that they're there? And then this thought came to me, and this is how it came to me. By that point in my life, and I'm not going to say that I'm utterly fearless, but I have accepted, and I've accepted for a long time, that hard karma can come to me. And if hard karma comes to me, God will also give me the strength to do it. 
So to put it in simple words, I'm not eager for hard karma to come to me, but I'm not terrified of it either. I don't spend all my time running around to try to prevent it. I do my best, and I trust that God will give me what I need. And it suddenly crossed my mind that I didn't trust anybody else on the planet to be able to deal with their own karma. I didn't trust my friends. I didn't trust my parents. It's like their karma is going to be too much for them. I have to rush in and protect them from their karma. And I thought, just the fundamental arrogance of that and the profound disrespect to everybody else. It's like, no wonder people didn't love me as much as they should. <laughs> because I was holding this thought of, <clears throat> I'm powerful and superwoman, and you're kind of a doofus, so I'll take over your life. Like, wow, honey, that's not like a real, that's not real attractive. And even if you're not saying it, it's still what you're projecting. And like, who put me in charge of the whole world? And why do I think that they're not eager to face their karma? They're not calling me, asking me to rescue them. You know, they're just living their lives, and they want to live their lives. And speaking of my parents, whose lives were quite distant from mine, really. They were good people, and I appreciate them, and I'm very grateful to them in you know, innumerable ways. But my life took a track that was not quite on the same line as theirs. And their life had been going inch by inch according to the necessary unfoldment of their soul's realization. The mere fact that they weren't disciples of Master living at Ananda didn't mean that they were not Divine Mother's children, didn't mean that they didn't have a soul exactly like mine and a superconscious exactly like that of every other sentient being that is deliberately, consciously, lovingly moving them inch by inch toward God realization. And if there were some low through the valley of the shadow of death parts in that, if there was any other way to get there, God and their own superconscious would have found another route. And then there was one more part of it that was really interesting when I really got it, which is their life does not seem strange to them. I'm looking out at the, the family in the, on the sidewalk in Calcutta, but I'm looking with my American passport in my hand and sufficient money, well, it wasn't my own money, it was because of the tour, but I mean, sufficient money to be in the hotel instead of outside of it because that's my karma, that's who I am. And they're on the sidewalk because that's their karma and that's who they are. And even if it's not, doesn't look pleasant to me, and maybe it's pleasant to them, I don't even know, it's the right place for them to be. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not, therefore, cutting them off and pushing them into the sea and saying that I'm better. I don't feel that at all. But each of us is equally a child of God. Uh, Swamiji added that into the Festival of Light. You know, that God loves Jesus Christ, Babaji, Krishna, just like he loves you and me, just like he loves the worst sinner on the planet. We are all equal in the eyes of God. We are all equally loved. We are all equally blessed. And if this is how God's blessing expresses, whether it's smallpox or leprosy or residency on the sidewalk or the karma that I live or my parents cycle at the end of their lives, it's a perfect expression of God's love. 
And what I should be trying to facilitate is not this rebellion against everybody's right to have their own karma, but I should be trying to tune into what they're trying to do. And so I, at a certain point I began to just shift my way of helping my parents. Instead of thinking what I thought they needed, I really tried to feel what do they, what do they think they need. How can I help them accomplish what their souls are trying to accomplish? How can I comfort them in their journey instead of trying to knock them off it and put them on the rails that I think we should be on? And of course, surprise, surprise, everything began to work so much better. And I also had to accept I may be inconvenienced. You know, if they don't let me organize their lives according to my preferences, something could happen. Now, right now, you know, March 2020, we're sitting in this weird situation on the planet, sort of waiting for cataclysmic things to happen. And, you know, there's the real possibility that either directly through this virus that we're all concerned about now, or as a consequence of having to deal with this virus, life could tumble down into conditions that are going to be a lot less convenient than any of the conditions that we've known until now. So suffering uh, may become widespread in a way that we have not yet personally, in this country at least, had to confront. So I think it's exceedingly important. I mean, we need to get ahead of the curve in this sense, which is insofar as we ourselves are uncomfortable even with the very idea of suffering, either in our own lives or the suffering of others, insofar as we are not able to put ourselves in the consciousness of Divine Mother, who comforts the child even as the mother takes the child through the difficult experience. You know, that's who we need to be. We need to be able to see it through Divine Mother's eyes. And it was through this, this cycle of experiences that I came up with a prayer that I've mentioned in these broadcasts, but I'm going to say it again. Actually, there's two of them. My prayer in India when I was first there, when I would be, you know, passing through a, a, a crowd of beggars or see someone on the street whose condition was so painful that I just didn't know what to do with it because, you know, the, the heart is tender. I would just say, Divine Mother, bless us all. And I, that was my mantra a lot going through India because I also needed her blessing. I needed her blessing to be able to hold her close in my heart and to feel myself to be her instrument, not merely a, a panicked American girl who didn't know how to deal with what she was seeing. I needed to be able to hold Divine Mother strongly in my heart. Give me the strength to hold you close, Mother. Divine Mother, bless us all. But Divine Mother's blessing is not necessarily the alleviation, the immediate alleviation or the ever alleviation of something difficult. Difficult things are required. Divine Mother's blessing is the grace to feel her uplifting hand through it. Divine Mother, bless us all. Repeat it over and over again. Whenever agitation comes into your heart for yourself or for someone else, and the other prayer that I prayed continuously for my parents because I was not neutral. You know, it would be naive to say that I was neutral about whether they were happy or sad or, or in, in health or in sickness or 
agitated or, or courageous. I was not neutral. But what I wanted for them was victory. I just, I didn't want them, I didn't want them to be rescued unless that rescue was a sign of victory. Because whatever delusions were causing them to suffer, they had to be overcome. When Swami was a child and having dental work in Romania, they didn't have Novocaine. And so they had to drill his teeth as a child without Novocaine. And of course he would scream. And as a result, sometimes his dentist did not finish drilling, but just put a filling over decay. And as a consequence, Swami had horrible troubles with his teeth for the rest of his life. Okay, is that, is that helping someone? So when we ask Divine Mother, spare these people the, the absolute necessary lessons to give them absolute freedom, is that a righteous prayer? And who are we serving? But we need courage. So that's why I would pray, Divine Mother, whatever it is you're trying to teach them, and whatever it is you're trying to teach me, give us the humility, the receptivity, the wisdom, the courage, and the devotion to learn it. And that's the only way to face suffering. That's the only way to really be victorious, whether the challenge is a world pandemic or a tiny disappointment in our own little private life. That's the only way to victory. God bless you.